Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you're about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2 will be where we will invest the majority of our time this evening. The sermon of the, I mean the title of the sermon is Two Decrees. And the reason there are two decrees is because what we find in the very first verse of Luke chapter 2, this moment, this chapter that is devoted completely to the birth of our Lord starts like this. In those days a decree went out. Obviously, we know from the story, we know from not only the stories that we've spent time reading of ourselves, but even just the the things that were told throughout our lives, Christmas movies and things like that. This is the Caesar sending out this, this grand thing to go to your home and to be registered. But what's important to note here is that what we're actually seeing unfold is not Caesar's decree. We come to this and certainly we look at Caesar, who was a mighty king without question. But what's important for us to understand is as we approach this text, as we approach this wonder of the season where we see the incarnate, the, the, the holy God become incarnate, that he would come to dwell with us, this is not some random occurrence, but it is that which was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, as we approach this text, it's important for us to understand one thing. This is the only means of reconciliation for mankind. There is no plan B. It has always been reconciliation through Christ and through Christ alone. And so this evening, before we dive into the text, I know that sitting out there are two types of people. Those who come because they are here to celebrate the incarnate Christ. And there are also those who are here to celebrate Christmas. If you are here to come to celebrate Christmas, brothers and sisters, hopefully what you will discover is that Christmas cannot be celebrated without worshiping the true Christ. And for those of you who have come to hear the word preached and to come and to celebrate our incarnate king, then let's do just that. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 2 is where we will be. At Mercy Hill Church, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you would and you are physically able, please stand. I would remind you that what's before us is the only, only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Our God is kind and has revealed himself to us in it. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away, from, went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. Father, we come to examine the scriptures that you have been so kind to reveal to us. And Lord, I come to you expressing frailty for Father. These things are far too lofty for any man to explain. But Lord, what we have in scripture is the perfect revelation. Lord, that we don't rest on the wisdom of men, but we rest on the clear revelation of scripture. And Father, as we approach this topic, I plead, would you help me in my weakness? But Lord, all the while I plead, would you by your grace apply these truths to our heart that we might also leave this place celebrating Christ all the more. That Lord, as we go into our homes, as we go to celebrate the Christmas season with our friends and our families, Lord, that we might proclaim Christ is Lord and that he might be honored first and foremost in every moment that is to follow. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray, amen. You may be seated. There are a couple of things that we wanna point out this evening. If you look at the text, we, we just simply like to walk directly through a text. So if you look at Luke chapter 2, I want to point out a couple of things and ultimately how all of these things point to an Old Testament picture of the Messiah. Luke chapter 2 says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, I just for a moment want you to see the almost mirage of power that Caesar actually has. He certainly is giving commands. He has the reasons to send and make these people go to their own homes. He is decreeing that they do this. And immediately you see these people follow his rule. Now let's remember what's taking place in Israel at this point. They have to some degree lost all Israelness about them and they bow to Rome. Whatever Rome says they do because they are in great fear that Rome would perhaps eventually come and take away all that makes them who they are. Even to this point where you would have one who is of the line of David bow before an emperor's command. He gives a decree, and certainly in giving this decree, you see, you see them follow and be obedient to it. What is perhaps most interesting about this is, as we approach this, we almost always see that there is some mighty hand in Caesar bring this about. Brothers and sisters, that is not so. There is a silent yet mighty hand that directs every single moment of Luke chapter 2. It is not the decree of Caesar. It is the decree of the Lord that went out before the foundation of the world that in this exact moment, Christ would come, that he would become incarnate and that he would, in his grace, reconcile man to himself. And so as we approach this, we see that they do just that. They follow Caesar's command. And it says this, this was the first registry when Quinarius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Have you ever paused and asked yourself the question, why would the Lord in his infinite sovereignty cause a woman who is incredibly pregnant to travel an an extremely long distance, and then, though he was perfectly capable of providing a place for her to stay and a clean and perfect environment to give birth, he does not. And it's actually quite the opposite. He doesn't only not provide for them a place that that is somewhat reasonable for the task at hand. Instead, it almost seems as he gives them quite the opposite of what we would ever hope or long for in regard to our own circumstances. Where does he place Mary and Joseph, those who both were of the line of David, those who were kingly almost in their lineage? Where does he place them? He places them in a barn, in a, essentially a room covered with livestock, camels and donkeys. And I think we glamorize this a bit too much. Our nativity scenes betray us. They're cute. They're pretty. Everything seems to be perfectly in their place. But this is not the case. And any of you who have ever walked into a barn know better. What you actually have in this scenario is the Christ, the holy, righteous Son of God, greeted by camels and donkeys, and very likely, pardon the language, the stench of manure. Why? Why is it that he would place the Lord Jesus in this scenario? almost the worst possible scenario. And this communicates something great to us. We love to lift up Christ. We love to look at the incarnation and celebrate it as something great and glorious. And certainly it is. But brothers and sisters, do not be fooled. This is the humiliation of our Lord. He clothes himself with human flesh. That which is in every sense as he looks down and searches out the children of man, is corrupt, but not his. That he comes not like us, but as one of us. And almost in his birth, there is a proclamation that the only means of difference that I will have from the rest of mankind is that I will be without sin. He will go to the lowest level. He will be the chief of servants. As Blake just read, we read Philippians chapter 2 that he comes as the, in the form of a servant to become obedient, even to obedience to, the, to death on the cross, the most heinous form of execution. But what will betray us even there is that does not place us, even as we explore the pain and agony of the crucifixion, oftentimes we miss the spiritual because we see the physical so clearly. Do you see, the reason that we come to celebrate the birth is because ultimately it, lead, it leads us into something more. If Christ would have been born of a virgin and never made it to the cross, we would have no means of celebration. We would come to celebrate something significant, certainly, but it would not be the reconciliation of our souls. It would not be us being ransomed back to the God who loves us. It would instead be something as he demonstrates his power to be able to do such a feat. And so we see this decree take place. We see it lead a pregnant woman to a long journey. Not only that, but we see that this decree is a means by which Christ fulfills all righteousness. Where was it prophesied in the Old Testament that Christ would come? Where would he come from? Ephraim, Bethlehem, house of bread, which I'm sure everyone here knows that language. 
But it is this house of bread that even in his birth foreshadows a teaching that he would give later on in John chapter 6. When he says, I am the bread of life. It is only through Christ and our feasting upon him that we can actually have life. That's the purpose of our coming to celebrate the incarnation. And should we come for any other reason, we have missed the picture altogether. We come because we look to Christ and we say, in this feeding trough is that which will ultimately be able to feed my soul throughout the expanse of eternity. And apart from that, we are hopeless. And the beauty of this is Christ, God the Father, has orchestrated that even in his birth, that which would be incapable of him controlling, prophecy would be completely fulfilled. Almost to the level that we would look at it and think that the authors would have to skew actual historical fact for it to be a reality. But brothers and sisters, that's not so. For the author of the scripture, though certainly this one is penned by Luke, it was without question inspired by the Spirit of God who can do no wrong. He has fulfilled in this, this king who thought that he was great, Caesar, thought that he was executing a good and perfect plan. Brothers and sisters, it was the Father who was executing a good and perfect plan to comfort us when we should look at scripture and think to ourselves, perhaps it is with error. And yet then we see things far outside of an infant's control would be perfectly fulfilled. That is only through the perfect plan of the Father being perfectly executed because he makes kings do what he wills. No soul is outside of his sovereign hand. And lastly, as we approach this, in verse 21 it says this, and at the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Well, let's ask the question then, when was this name given and ultimately what should we take from just this giving of this name? And this name historically has so much weight to it. It would remind them immediately as they heard and read this name of Joshua, that great warrior king that we read about in the Old Testament. Not only that, it would remind us of the Joshua mentioned in the book of Zechariah. But more than that, as we see this, there is this sweet, sweet verse that we find in Matthew 1 verse 21 where, where Jesus' earthly adoptive, if you will, father, is given the name to give to his son. And this is what the scripture says. And I want you to hear this because I want you to hear the weight behind this. So in verse 20, we'll start there. It says this, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is born is from the Holy Spirit. Now listen to verse 21. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. You see, the culmination of the Christmas story of Luke chapter 2 is really in the giving of the name of Christ. The giving of the name that really already has this great weight behind it, should you have read the Gospel of Matthew. This name that is given is essentially a guarantee of what he will accomplish. It is a name that says he will, in actuality, save his people from their sin. Now, the reason this is so important for us is because I think far too often we find ourselves timid in the salvation that Christ has provided for us. We think it not be as strong as Scripture teaches. Hear me when I say this, saint. Your salvation was secured in an original decree. And the name that Christ is given here is a reminder of that, that Jesus will in actuality save his people from their sin. Those whom he aims to rescue and redeem, he will keep. He will save his people from their sin. 
But that leads us to the second decree, because brothers and sisters, should we come to celebrate the incarnation without ever looking at the cross, we would be foolish at best. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we see this, uh, this playing out. And all throughout history, we see this idea of a redemption promised. And then we even see it applied in the New Testament as we actually come to faith. But what I really want to look at here this evening is redemption accomplished. What actually took place for our souls to be saved? And there are three things that had to happen. Three. Three things had to happen. Acts chapter 2, verse 22 is where we'll begin. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the second, or perhaps more accurately, the first decree. We read Luke chapter 2. We see this idea of this governor giving out this decree, this commission for people to go back to their homeland where they can be registered. But there is a better and a more prominent, a more powerful decree that has gone out earlier. This is the decree in which ultimately our salvation rests. When we come to look at Christ in the manger, we would be fools not to look past it to the cross. For the literal moment of his incarnation, his body, his flesh, his blood were ultimately there to be broken and shed for us. We must not be so foolish as to think he had to be just born so that he could ultimately die, but there had to be something else that was accomplished. Christ had to fulfill all righteousness. This is perhaps the most forgotten and to our detriment doctrine of the church. Brothers and sisters, if you be in Christ, you need not earn your own righteousness. You cannot. What is most tragic is that we still aim to do so. The reason Christ was born in Bethlehem is because it was a means for him to fulfill all righteousness. He was called to be born in Ephraim, that little town that perhaps was small in Israel, but it is great in redemptive history. And there we see him starting this process as an infant, as that which was born, as that which would lay in the major and hunger and thirst and perhaps even grow to be cold. We look there and we see him actually fulfilling the righteousness that is necessary for us to enter in the gates of heaven. For some reason, we have begun to preach a gospel that simply is only the remission of sin, which praise be to God for, but that is a half gospel. It is not the whole. The whole gospel demands that you be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Should you enter in, perhaps, or should you stand before God on that day of judgment? The reason he says to those fools who would come and bring their deeds before him, away with you, you evildoer, I never knew you, is because essentially what they are doing is saying, Christ's righteousness is not sufficient, look to mine. And should we do that, we will share their fate. Brothers and sisters, you must have something more. You must have something alien. It cannot come from you. For we are wicked to our core. Be not fooled. Scripture, perhaps clearer than almost on any other subject, points to our frailty, to how we are feeble, how we cannot do what is necessary to stand in right relationship with our God. 
So what had to occur? We call it the covenant of redemption that God in his infinite grace gave people to Christ and Christ came incarnate, fulfilled perfect righteousness that we might dwell with him eternally. Listen to the language. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. When Christ laid in that manger, it was already, already the start of of redemption being accomplished that when he came, when he was laying in that manger, the cross was in view. It came to pass by his definite foreknowledge. It came to pass because he decreed it to come to pass. Should you question the love of God for you, brothers and sisters? As that infant that was the treasure of heaven that had been caught up from eternity past in a loving triangle of love, being the supreme object of the Trinity's affection, As that child laid there, it was in view, his execution. And his execution is not a gentle one. If you notice the language here, it says this, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Christ, the holy, righteous King of heaven, would be by the hands of wicked men, beaten and bruised and crucified, ultimately to have his side pierced. But what is so upsetting is that in that moment, that was not a simple execution. No one died like Christ died. We certainly look there, we see the blood, we see the bruises, we see him, his flesh being torn. But this is nothing in compared to what was actually endured there. We look to the cross of Christ and we see all these things unfold and the people who would say, look to Jesus, he'll show you how to be moral, would say, look to his death, he suffered well. But the biblical account does not say that. The biblical account says, look to Christ and see the wrath of God displayed. Look to Christ and see him drink the cup full. He will drink it in its entirety. There will be no wrath left for you, saint. So should you look to the cross of Christ, you would see that he actually did die for the sins of his people. And he died for the sins of his people perfectly. He did not make salvation possible. He actually made salvation. He accomplished it in full. That as he drank that cup of wrath, that means that those who trust Christ will have none to drink for themselves. It can't be done. God would deny himself of being just should he do that. At the start of this story, In Genesis chapter 3, the greatest problem that we have is God is good and just, and we are not. And at the end of the story, for every saint we sing, God is just and good, and there my salvation lies. Because if he is just and good, he cannot forget, nor will he ever forget, the perfect obedience of his son. To do so would deny his own being. God has hung your salvation on himself and himself alone. So the question then becomes, what then or how then do we respond to this? Most of you here, I would presume, are in Christ. You know the Lord. And this should be the season in which our souls are most secure and comforted. 
Because we're reminded of the extent to which Christ would go to ransom and to redeem to himself a people. And should he go to such great lengths, we can rest very comfortably that he will never lose that which he bought. His hand is not too short to save. But, and even for us who are in Christ, we would, be, we would do well to be reminded of the very last point of Peter's excellent sermon in Acts 2. Listen to verse 37 and following. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Which is the question that I think we would all do well to ask ourselves. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the question then is, what then shall we do? For those of you who are here, who perhaps stumbled in because you love Christmas and you wanted to celebrate, and this is a good Southern tradition, I would encourage you, repent and be baptized. Turn away from your sin. Look to Christ. He is your only means of rescue and redemption. And perhaps you think this is not the best place for that, but I'm not so fooled to believe that our culture is so Christian. For far too many don't know the clear teaching of the gospel. Should you have stumbled in here today, if you don't turn to Christ, you will die in your sin. That wrath that you see at the cross will be yours to drink. But should you look to Christ and say, in there is my hope and stay, should you look to the manger and say, there be my true, medi- my true mediator who is true God, true man, who ever lives to stand in the gap between God and myself, I am in need of him. And should you cast yourself before him, then I guarantee you that what you will find there is a perfect Savior. Perfect. But should you reject him? Should you turn on him? Should you say to yourself, I shall stand before him with my own righteousness? Then you will bear the repercussions of your own righteousness. That even in their pinnacle are proclaimed as filthy rags of which giving an explanation for is inappropriate in mixed company. But what is so glorious is that each and every one of us deserve that fate. And yet, should we look to Christ, we have reconciliation that Christ who was born here ultimately gives us a new and better birth. He was born to give us a second birth. John chapter 3 makes this clear. We must be born from above if we long to see the glories of heaven, if we long to be united with Christ throughout all of eternity. It is only through him. And brothers and sisters, he is the one who gives life. Some of us walk around believing that we are alive. John chapter 17 verse 3 gives us clear, the clear definition of what life is. It is knowing God the Father in Christ whom he has sent. Breathing is not life. Your heart beating is not life. As a matter of fact, more often than not, our heart's beating is simply a means by which our wickedness expresses itself. That even in the beating of our heart, we are in rebellion against him. That the breath that we draw often is exhaled in scorn of him. And so how then, what, how does our wicked heart become new? How do we gain life? 
It is through Christ and through Christ alone. And that is where we look and see in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ's resurrection secures yours. If you be in Christ, this is a language that we have forgotten, but it is the language of Scripture. It is not the idea of you being a Christian. The question is, are you in Christ? Were you with him in his death? Was he your substitute? For if you are with him in his death, then you certainly have died there. And if you have died there, then brothers and sisters, you can rest comfortably. For you are in Christ, meaning that you will be raised with him. And he will never abandon you, for you will go where he goes. And so the, 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 the plea is let us not go another year, saint especially, celebrating Christmas like pagans. Is Christ the, the, the joy, the splendor of Christmas? Is he the reason that we come to gather or is it because we love our family and friends, which is a glorious thing? But should we come to celebrate Christmas apart from Christ, we are foolish people at best. But to come and to celebrate Christmas and to celebrate Christ, who is good, who is perfect, who is holy, that this should be the season in which our souls sing loudest. Because in infinite humility, based upon the love of God, he came to ransom to himself his people. And he has accomplished it.